You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Well, let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We have uh, actually began this series over 10 weeks ago. And uh, we started with, you remember, a single verse from uh, the end of our study in, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, where Peter writes to the church in Asia, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her, you her greetings. And we learned that she who is in Babylon was really a pseudonym for the church in Rome. And that Rome was, in essence, the Babylon of Peter's day. In the Bible, Babylon is much more than an ancient city or an empire. It is also a, a demonic and humanistic spirit that prompts kings and governmental leaders and globalists to rebel against God by promoting a counterfeit kingdom, a counterfeit kingdom of God. From the days following the great flood at the Tower of Babel, the spirit of Babylon has uh, deceived and dominated the human race and will continue to do so until it is destroyed at the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and all of that is told in the book of Revelation, verse, uh, chapter 17 and 18. So what we have surmised from this is that there is a sense in which we, just like the early Christians in Rome, are living in our own Babylon today. And the question is, in the light of that, how can we live for God and fulfill the purposes of God in Babylon? And that question led us to consider the example of the biblical prophet Daniel, who for nearly his whole life lived and worked in ancient Babylon. And all of his adventures along those lines are found in the first six chapters of uh, the book of Daniel. But now we have come to the seventh chapter, uh, the beginning of the second half of the book. And the second half of Daniel is not historical narrative about Daniel's life. It contains all of Daniel's visions, prophetic visions from, from God. And as, as we study these visions, our goal remains the same, to be equipped to live for God in Babylon. Now, there's three things that we have to know about the visions that we're going to be getting into in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and, and so forth. The first thing is all these visions that Daniel receives are very apocalyptic in nature. And by apocalyptic, I mean they are not just visions about the future. They are visions about future events that lead up to the ominous and cataclysmic end of the human race as we know it. The great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi calls it. It is a day that is troubling at very least and so troubling that Daniel in this chapter says after learning these things, his mind was so deeply troubled and and he became so fearful that his face turned pale. He turned white as a sheet. 
But the day of the Lord is not only dreadful, it is also great and glorious because it is the beginning of a whole new day and a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin and there will only be perfection. The Apostle John in Revelation 21 says there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away. And we often jump over the first reality to the second reality because we don't like to think about the end. We don't like to think about the finality of it. We don't like to think about hearing that, that arc door slam shut and there is no more opportunity for any human being of escaping divine judgment. And that's why it's called the dreadful day of the Lord. And so Daniel is talking about these things here. It's very apocalyptic in nature. But secondly, all these visions are very much full of imagery. Imagery that includes powerful hybrid beasts on wings and with multiple heads and teeth of iron and horns, one of which has a horn that has eyes on it and speaks. And all of these beasts are arising from this tumultuous sea and are judged before a flaming throne and a man riding on a cloud in front of millions of people. I mean, it's really far out, isn't it? It's full of imagery. And, you know, the Western mind is, is not probably as comfortable as the ancient mind with, with these images. I think the average person in Daniel's day was reading this was much more comfortable with appreciating the mysterious nature and not of these visions and not so compulsive about decoding every nuance of them. And they also did not have the rest of the Bible to help them understand what was written here. They didn't have 2 Thessalonians or Matthew 24, 25. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have Ezekiel. All they had was this letter right here. Fortunately, we have the whole Bible to understand what uh, Daniel's visions are, are all about. But, but, but I want you to think about it. If the Lord had just wanted to give Daniel, you know, just the facts about the end times, why doesn't he just give it to him in exact words? Why does he give it to him in pictures? Ever think about that? Why make his future plans, which are so important to know? Why make them, or why communicate them in, in pictures and, and visions? Well, the reason is, is that God is not only revealing the future in these visions, he's revealing himself to Daniel and impressing on Daniel a sense of the weight of his glory. And the same is true for us. And that's why it's important for us to study prophetic Scripture. But with that in mind, it's also important to realize that while the images and the metaphors of this vision communicate accurately, they are not always intended to communicate precisely. And if we fail to recognize that, we will fall into the trap of trying to figure out every detail of every one of these visions, which has led some to erroneous predictions of the second coming of Christ, and has led others to have an obsession with prophecy, sometimes to the point where they miss some of the main purposes of biblical prophecy and these visions, and that is, thirdly, to inspire hope and perseverance. You know, the last half of Daniel is prophecy. 
25% of all Scripture is prophecy. There's a reason for that. God has a reason for that. And half of that prophecy is fulfilled and half is yet to be fulfilled. But all of it is intended by God to encourage our love for Him and our faithfulness to, to Jesus Christ and to live for Him. We have to remember again the original audience of this book the exiles in Babylon, and that it was written, firstly, to strengthen them in their resolve to live for the Lord in spite of their many, many years under governmental oppression. For much of the history of Christianity, the church has been oppressed and controlled by human kingdoms and governments, and it, and it remains that way in many parts of the world today. And it seems, it seems that this control and this oppression is currently expanding over the whole world, not just certain nations anymore, which of course makes the book of Daniel particularly relevant and timely for us. In spite of this apparent dominance of godless worldly power though, the Lord is in control of history and the Lord is sovereign over the nations and this is something that all exiles need to be reminded of quite regularly. Just like the Jewish exiles in Babylon needed to be reminded, you're going home one day. I have promised it to you. You will return to your city. In the same way, us modern exiles living under the spirit of Babylon need to constantly be reminded, you're going home one day. You're going home to a city that's not built with the hands of men. You're going home to the city of God. You have to remember that. You have to remember that. That's why 25% of the Bible is all about that. It must be important then for us to, to know, to study, to learn from. Until then, we are to love our neighbor as ourself and speak God's truth and love. And as we engage the struggle to love with truth in a culture and a system that's fueled by hate and lies, we must believe that God's victory is certain. And it is only then, really, that we can maintain a faith to be faithful and to persevere into one day here. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, chapter 7 is uh, divided into four sections. Let me give you a little outline. It's going to take more than one week to go through. I, originally, I was thinking I'm going to get through this in a week. No, it may be three, maybe two. But I want to, before we get going, just give you a 30-second brief outline of where we are going uh, studying this vision of Daniel. First of all, you have the circumstances of the vision given to Daniel in verse 1. And then in the next <clears throat> 13 verses, you have the content of the vision. It comes in two scenes. I'll talk more about that later. The first scene is by a great sea. The second scene is before a great courtroom. And then, after it's all over, Daniel asks a supernatural being who is watching the vision with him for some clarification. And so the next section we'll look at next week is clarification of the vision. And finally, the last verse is the consequence that the vision had upon Daniel. So what I want to do is start with the bookends and then jump into the content. I want to look first at the circumstance of the dream and its effect or consequence on Daniel. And then we're going to go through the actual vision itself. So verse 1, ready? Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream, 
and visions passed through his mind as he was laying, lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, this is a vision. This vision occurred at night. Its main points were recorded by Daniel. We have those here in the book of Daniel. And it happened in the first year, it says here, of King Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king. And therefore, Daniel is looking back now. In other words, chapter 7 does not follow chapter 6 in a chronological timeline. Chapter 7 actually happens before chapter 5, right? The writing on the wall. Before chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel is remembering back to a vision he had in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Um, It was one vision, you'll see, or it is one vision overall, but it has several scenes in it. So when you read through this, you'll notice, I saw, and then I looked, and then I saw. And then, besides all of that, there seems to be people watching the vision with Daniel because the second part of this, when he asks for clarification, he turns to some divine being. I'm assuming an angel or a son, one of the sons of God that we've talked about before and asks him for clarification. So the idea is, just think of Daniel's in a theater. And there's these other heavenly beings with him watching this screen in which the events of the future are flying by. And then I saw. And then I saw. And then I saw. That's what's going on here. So there's multiple scenes within this one vision. The whole thing is so powerful. It might be labeled more than a vision. It it might rightly be labeled an encounter with God, which is again implied by Daniel when he reveals the consequence and the effect that the vision had upon him. He says in verse 28, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel's face here is not glowing with the glorious presence of God. It's pale because he's encountered the dreadful presence of God. And apparently it was so disturbing that he couldn't even tell anyone until years later he's writing it down here. So let's look at the first part of it, beginning in verse 2. This is scene 1 now. This is before a great sea. Scene 2 is in a courtroom. So first, scene 1, verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, were the four winds of heaven churning up the sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, the great sea here in Daniel's day would have been the Mediterranean Sea. But in the Bible, throughout the Bible, the sea is also used as a symbol for the whole of humanity. All of the human race together is like a sea. And so the churning waters of the sea is symbolic for the instability and the restlessness of fallen mankind, sinful humanity. There's a restlessness here. The the sea is, is churning. And out of this chaotic sea, four beasts arise. Verse 17 tells us, we'll see next week, that the beasts represent four great world empires that will one day arise from the earth. And presumably, and I think you'll agree with this as we go along, the same empires 
that were revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue in chapter 2. Do you remember that? There was the head of gold. That was Babylon. There was the chest and arms of silver. That was the Medo-Persian empire that came after Babylon. And then came the belly and thighs of bronze. That was the Greek empire, which came after the Persian empire. And then lastly, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. That was the Roman empire, which followed the Greek empire. Now, the beasts, these beasts that are revealed to, to, to actually reveal the same thing, um, with the exception of the second, are not normal animals. They're bizarre. They're bizarre hybrids and perversions of what God created. And what that implies is that although their governing authority is from God, they pervert it and they use it in a way that is rebellious and sinful. And of course, this is the reason that all nations fall. Nations rise and fall, not just because of the events that happen to them, but because of what God is doing behind the scenes. Judging one nation, raising another one up. He is not removed from the events of the world, but intimately involved in everything that is going on. He is sovereign over all. Again, the vision of four beasts, similar to the four metals of the statue, but we find out a lot more about these kingdoms. Let's look at verse 4 and the first beast. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle, and I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Now, the lion and the eagle, of course, are both very dominant animal and bird within their sphere. The eagle's dominant, the lion is dominant, they produce fear in their prey. And this is why the Babylonians chose a lion with eagles to be the symbol of their kingdom. Murals and statues of winged lions were very common in ancient Babylon and still are prevalent today in Iraq, which is where ancient Babylon was. Additionally, both the lion and the eagle are used by Jeremiah and Ezekiel to refer to Babylon's most illustrious king, Nebuchadnezzar. So the winged lion represents Babylon. Now Daniel kept watching this winged lion, and all of a sudden the wings were removed, the lion stood up on feet and was given the mind of a man. Now if you were here for Daniel 2, you'll probably go, that sounds like something that happened to who? Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's likely that this transformation that changed King Nebuchadnezzar from an animal, remember God judged him for seven years and he was out in the wilderness and then God restored him and restored his sanity and restored his humanity um, after seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar after that lost his lust for conquering nations. He never again led the army of Babylon against anybody else, and, and Babylon as a whole became much less aggressive and more humane, thus given the mind of a man, standing up on one feet, going from animal-like to a bit more human-like. And so, that the sec so you see that very clearly here that this is definitely referring to Babylon. So Daniel's vision begins with what he already knows at the time that he received it, the first year of Bel 
Shazard's reign. Now, the rest of this vision is all in the future. Some of it for Daniel is in the near future, some of it in the distant future, some of it still in our future. Verse 5, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, this bear-like beast symbolizes, again, the next kingdom, Medo-Persian Empire, which followed the Babylonians. And while it is not a, a hybrid beast, it was still a very ferocious animal of prey, and of course, that's depicted not only because it's a bear, but because it's, uh, it's gnawing on three ribs when he sees it, which probably refers to the kingdoms already conquered. And then it was commanded to get up and eat your fill of flesh. That refers to the kingdoms yet to be conquered by the Persian Medo, Medo-Persian Empire. Now, we don't know for sure, but it says it was kind of leaning over on its side. Nobody really knows for sure, and we can't press these things. I'm going to throw something out there. In the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians were the dominant part of that alliance. And so it was a little lopsided, so we have here a lopsided bear, if you will. Verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now the four-winged, four-headed, leopard-like Beast represents the Greek Empire and its founder, Alexander the Great, who devoured nations with incredible speed, hence the leopard. He became king and started conquering at age 23. By the time of his 30th birthday, he was mourning that there was no more nations left to conquer, and he was dead by 33, lost his purpose, I guess. So the leopard here is the fastest animal of prey, and that's the way the Greeks conquered the the world. Now, after that, come to the fourth one now. Verse 7, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the, uh, all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, this fourth beast, it's not, do you know it's not likened to any kind of animal that exists? We don't know why, but perhaps because it was more fierce than any other of the previous kingdoms. There was no animal above the animals already used. Daniel describes it. It's terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It conquered by crushing with its large iron teeth. And then after it's crushed its prey, walking over it again and, and crushing the pieces. Everything in this description perfectly aligns with Rome, of whom it was said, they conquered by raising the land, making it a desert, and calling it peace. The iron-like brutality of Rome was renowned. But it also did something good in a way. It ended all the wars between all of these other factions of, of, of smaller nations that brought a peace to the whole world at that time that enabled Rome then to build a, a global highway system just in time 
for the disciples to answer the command of Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The road system was already in place. God knows what he's doing. Amen? Your life too. So Rome was by far the biggest and longest running kingdom in the world. The empire and the republic lasted for almost a thousand years. And if you count just the eastern empire, thank you, um, almost 2,000 years. If you add the Byzantine or eastern empire of Rome in, 2,000 years. But what made it different um, and unique from all the other beasts or kingdoms was not simply the size or duration of Rome. What made it different was that the power of Rome, unlike kingdoms before, was not found in a king. It wasn't centered on a king or even a culture or even the laws of that kingdom, but rather it was founded on a commitment to an ideal embodied by Rome, something not written in law, something simply passed on. They called it mos maiorum. I'm not Latin, but there you go. Furthermore, Daniel noted that the fourth beast had ten horns, like what? The ten toes in Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. And later on, we'll read that those ten horns, like the ten toes, are ten kings that will come out of this fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom. And as to when those ten kings come forth, there's lots of, uh, lots of speculation out there, several views, and I think we might look at some of those next week. Um, along with, of course, more details on the next part of the vision. Daniel says in verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns that were on top of the beast, ten horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Two things here about the horn. First, it uprooted three of the original ten, which means that it was probably more powerful than any single horn or kingdom, but not powerful enough to take on all ten. Secondly, the little horn had eyes like a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And these observations seem to suggest the little horn was not just a kingdom, but a person, a person who spoke boastfully who spoke later on in verse 25 against the Most High and oppressed His holy people and tried to change the times, the set times and the laws. So this, of course, seems to be the very first biblical reference to an individual later described in John's epistles as the Antichrist. In Revelation as the man of sin and the beast that arises from the sea. And in Second. Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness that rises to exalt himself and oppose God just before the second coming of Christ. Now, the scene all of a sudden changes. We go from the sea to a courtroom. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. 
A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What a scene, huh? Now, just let me ask you, does that make you understand more or feel more? Both, but it appeals what to your sense of feeling. God wants us to feel something here as well as know. And that's what prophetic literature, that's what prophetic literature in the Bible does. Now, as Daniel looked into the unseen realm, he saw this heavenly courtroom. The first to be seated was called the Ancient of Days, a title of God that is intended to distinguish him from all other earthly kings. The great kings of this earth begin and end in barely a moment of time, but over them all is the ancient of days whose reign has neither beginning nor end of days. He is the ancient of days. His clothing was white as snow, symbolizing his purity, as opposed to the kings and kingdoms of the world who at their very core are corrupt. His wool-like hair symbolized his perfect wisdom by which he rules and carry out his plan. Now, the throne of the Ancient of Days is unique. There's many thrones, but this one is unique among all of them in the courtroom, and that is it's, it's flaming with fire, symbolizing his irresistible power. Ultimate power, you know this, is not centered in Washington, D.C., nor Brussels, nor Beijing, nor Moscow, Ultimate power is in the throne of God. The wheels of this throne reveal that the Ancient of Days is not bound to one place, that His justice extends to all people in all times, at all places. The river of fire flowing forth from His throne symbolized the judgment that flows from His perfect justice. And adjacent to the throne, there were other thrones, and around them were countless angels just ready to do the bidding of the Ancient of Days, serving Him. And for anyone like Daniel, who's ever felt alone or marginalized in this life, this scene can heal you because it helps you realize that though you feel alone, you're never alone. Not only is God with you, but so are tens, thousand times ten thousand perfect holy beings gathered around the throne worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not alone. We are on the right side, on the big side, on the big side, on the dominant team, not the other one. For a while, God is letting us not be dominant because in our weakness, He reveals His strength. But one day, all oh, that's going to flip. Roll Tide. Or whatever team you like that's great. I guess I said that because college football just started yesterday, right? Yeah, see, it was in my head. These things in my head. So finally, finally, the court of heavenly beings, the divine council, was seated on the other thrones. We might next week look at who these other beings are. And the books were opened. And the books, of course, were books of judgment. We learn about these in other portions of Scripture, and they contain the records of crimes against God and against humanity of which the beastly empires were, were guilty. And then verse 11 
Daniel says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had already been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So here he is in this moment, like we were just a minute ago. And all of a sudden, here's the boastful whine. I imagine it's a whine of the horn boasting of its own power and strength. And all of a sudden, boom, it's done. Silence. There's nothing. It's over. It's completed as the fourth beast upon which the horn grew out of is slain and body thrown into the blazing fire, the eternal lake of fire. And in a moment, this great oppressor of God's people, the one who seemed to be so dominant for so long, the one who up to his very last moment was so pompous in his boast, he goes out like a puff of smoke. His rise to power will be climactic, but his ending is very anticlimactic. It's just a blip. Bip! He's gone. The Antichrist is done. Blip! Done. Just like that. Just like that. Just a blip on the radar screen of history. And this is on purpose. Why? Why is that? It's God's way of indicating there's no match for me. There's no match for the ancient of days. I have no match. I have no rival. I have no equal. I have no one that even comes close. Even the Antichrist served my holy purposes. Along with and prior to God judging the fourth beast, it says here parenthetically that he had already judged the other three, but not so drastically or dramatically as the fourth the first three empires lost their dominion over the earth, but had been permitted to continue under new regimes for an unspecified, predetermined amount of time. But the big lesson here is that God is in control, and He'll ultimately judge the nations and fully establish His kingdom among us. The four beasts or kingdoms are not sovereign. God is sovereign. God is working out as well. And you can see that when you read this passage a little bit closer. You know sometimes when you're reading through and you kind of get the main points, then you read through again, you read through again, you go away, you come back later on, you read through again. And by the way, I suggest that as a method for reading the Bible. Because that fourth time, all of a sudden you go, I never saw that before. Well, you read it three times. But you know how that works, right? So when you read it through, what you'll, what you'll see here is throughout this entire passage, God is, is portraying and proclaiming his sovereignty, just as he did with the blip, and the Antichrist is gone. Remember the lion? The lion, what, had its wings removed, was made to stand and given a mind like a man. Who did that? Who did that? Did that just happen? Did the universe do that? <laughs> I'm kidding. That's a joke. That comes from watching too much alone. Did <laughs> you ever watch that show where they throw these people out in the middle of nowhere, no cameramen, they're their own cameramen, and they have to survive, right? And every time like one of them gets a fish, they go, oh, thank you, Earth, or thank you, whoever, because they're not allowed to say God, so they're always thanking something else, right? <laughs> then you have the bear-like creature. He was given a, a command to get up, eat your your fill of flesh. Well, who gave him that command? Who spoke to him to do that? 
the ancient of days. The leopard-like creature was given authority to rule. By who? And who sent the four winds of heaven that churned up the sea in the first place? When you truly believe, listen, when you really believe it, you know it in your heart that God is sovereign in control over the whole world, all the leaders, all the governments, all the global powers, all the technocrats, all of them, all of the powers. And I say that because really probably the most powerful force in the world today is not an army. It's Google. That's another sermon. And you know I'd love to go there right now. But I can't. I'm in Daniel 7. But when you believe that God is ultimately in control over all of it, you can live your life with the sense of peace and joy right in the middle of Babylon. Even when Babylon starts getting more and more chaotic. And you see that going on. You're going, where was that place I used to live in? That world I used to live in, the chaos is on the increase. But you can have the same peace and joy because why? I know God is working out everything in accordance with the purpose of His will, Ephesians chapter 1. I can rest in that. I don't like it. I'm not in love with all of this, but I know God's working on His plan, bringing everything to an ultimate end, just like He's showing Daniel right here. Ultimately, the vision ends with a coronation. Look at verse 13, in my vision. So here's another scene. See, the scenes are going by. Next scene, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in this last scene here of Daniel's vision, he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven who is given authority glory and power by the ancient of days who is worshipped by all nations and who rules a kingdom that will never end. Now obviously this, is, this son of man is no normal man. He's more than a man. He is a man, but he's more than a man. And that is why the title son of man became, came to be understood by the Jewish people and the, especially the Jewish people of Jesus' day to refer to the promised Messiah. That's what son of man meant. It didn't just mean you are human because you came from human son of man. It was an Old Testament title that specifically referred to the Messiah. And that is why of all the titles given to the Lord Jesus, it is this one alone with only one other exception by which he refers to himself 81 times in the Gospels. This is what Jesus called himself. Others called him many other things. This is the title Jesus used uh, when he was referring to himself, particularly when he was talking about his mission. Matthew 20, 28. The what? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Mark 8. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Matthew 12, for as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And on trial, 
on trial. One of his unjust, six unjust trials, one was before the high priest Caiaphas. This is the guy who knew more of the Old Testament than anybody else. He was the high priest. The high priest asked him this question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And you know what Jesus did? He gave him an answer right out of Daniel 7. He said, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest heard that, he went absolutely berserk. He went nuts. Why? Because that was like the most blasphemous thing you could say. Why? Because Jesus was saying, I am the one that Daniel was talking about. I am the Son of Man. I am God. Why? Because the title Son of Man not only referred to a special and unique human being, it referred to a human being that was equally God. Because Daniel's Son of Man rules a kingdom that will never end. Well, if you never quit ruling, you live forever. You've got to be more than a normal man. Daniel, son of man, was worshipped by all nations and people, something only done for God alone. Daniel, son of man, comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days as an equal to be crowned with all authority and power. Therefore, he must be God. Daniel, son of man, comes on the clouds of heaven, which is an Old Testament way of saying, there's God. There's God. Psalm 68, 4. He comes on clouds of heaven, sing to God, sing praise of His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord, or Yahweh. Daniel, son of man, is God Himself, but Daniel, son of man, is also man. But not just any man. He's the true man. The true man who, did you notice that? He's led right into the presence of the Ancient of Days, no human being could do that, you'd fry. Only this man could stand in the presence of the Holy Ancient of Days, or God the Father, right? So here is this man, this ultimate man, this true man, who comes into the presence of God. And this was God's original design for Adam. Adam was made to rule as God's vice-regent, over the whole earth and obediently exercise his God-given authority and dominion. Instead of doing that, what did he do? He sinned. He lost his dominion. He was removed from the garden of God's presence. He fell short of God's glory. Romans 3.23. And ever since, Adam's offspring have tried to recover that lost glory and that lost dominion without repenting of sin, but by creating a counterfeit glory and a counterfeit dominion to lay hold of. And this is why the Son of Man, the second Adam, took up where the first Adam failed, in a garden. But unlike the first Adam, who failed to obey, this second Adam, this ultimate man, this true man, perfectly obeyed. Philippians 2 says, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. Do you notice what this says? It says every knee. Every knee. That means every in the Greek. Right? Every human being. Every. So that means this. Every human being will, will willingly kneel to worship the one who gave his life to purchase their redemption. Or they're going to be forced to kneel by one of his glorious angels moments before they are cast permanently into outer darkness along with the Antichrist. There's only two options. The Bible's very clear about it. There's only two roads, wide and narrow. There's only two gates. There's only two options, man's option or God's. See, when Jesus died, He died not only to save us from the effects of sin. You know how sin messes up our lives? He died to save us from the penalty of sin. God's holy wrath in hell. And if His death is to be effective for us, if His death is to forgive our sins and rescue us from hell, it must be believed on and received in this life. This life is the only chance we get to do that. After it's over, the ark door is closed forever. It's only in this life. It's nothing that we should like toy around with. We're talking about eternal things here. And no one really knows when that last moment will come to their life. So the question this morning in the light of that, are you ready for that? Are you ready? Have you truly believed? Have you understood the gospel? Why you need the gospel? And have you, have you believed it for the forgiveness of your sin? The Bible says that when you do, you are safe. Safe from what? Safe from the penalty. But you know what? Also safe from the destructive power of sin. It doesn't have to rule in our lives anymore. We don't have to stand by and watch it just tear our lives apart. We have power. In Christ, through His resurrection, we can say no to sin. It's not that we're totally immune to it, but we have power now to say no. We can rise up against it. We can choose to live holy before God. But it's a choice. It's a decision. It's a decision that we have to make in our life, this life. If you've never made it, this morning would be a great time. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. I'd like to lead you in a confession, and then I want to close with a thought. I've never believed you say, I don't know for sure. Here you can know right now, right now. The Bible says that, <clears throat> that faith or belief, it, 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 it comes from the heart, but it finds its way out of our mouth. With the heart man believes, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10. So you're here and that's you. This, it's this, here it is right now. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. That he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven to make me right with God. I trust God. Christ. 
right now. I believe. I have turned from my sin and embraced Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus. So when you do that, and for all of you who have done it in years past, you've prayed. There's a moment. There's a belief. There's a confession. You're saved. Now you become a part of the, Daniel's vision. Do you know that? You're in there. Remember the 10,000 by 10,000 circling around the throne? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be there. You're going to join them. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 tells us exactly that, that we're going to join that vast company of supernatural beings around the throne singing. And here it is right here. You better get used to this one. You better know this one. There's going to be no screen in heaven, no overhead. You better have it memorized. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To Him who sits on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and unto the Lamb, the Son of Man, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. He's got us covered. That's all I got to say. He's got you covered. Just put your trust in him, all right? Let's all stand. I'd like our prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here for a few minutes after the service. Uh, look forward to seeing you next week for the second half of Daniel chapter 7. God bless you. Have a great, great, great Labor Day weekend.